0: Undoubtedly, the dulcet tones of Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass means it's time for another edition of Fangraphs Audio. I'm Carson Stouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest today on the program is the founder and president of Maple Street Press. If you're familiar with that name, it's probably because they've published a preseason annual for your favorite team, and that annual almost definitely contains some of the sharpest writing uh, you could find on the internet or in print media. Together, Mr. Walsh and I endeavored to tell the Maple Street Press story from its humble beginnings long ago in 2006 when Mr. Walsh published the initial annuals for the Boston Red Sox and Notre Dame Fighting Irish football team to the present empire of Maple Street Press and the potential for the future. If you suspect somehow that Mr. Walsh, a dedicated Red Sox fan, is able to restrain himself from talking about the current iteration of that team, you'd be quite mistaken my interview with James Walsh right now on Fangraphs Audio. It is Fangraphs Audio, and it is with great pleasure that I uh, introduce our guest today. His name is Jim Walsh. He's the president and founder of Maple Street Press, maker of Fine Baseball Annuals, Uh, and if I'm correct, he's joining us from a uh, mahogany-paneled corner office from his uh, uh, from his uh, rustic uh, rustic or small town uh, palatial
1: however you want to describe it
0: palatial uh, yeah right office in uh, in Hanover Massachusetts is that right
1: that is correct thanks for having me yeah
0: you're welcome bustling metropolis of Hanover
1: bustling metropolis that it is just Uh, down the street from the Hanover Mall
0: Hanover oh well there you go that's fine real estate
1: Um, so if anyone yeah if anyone wanted uh, a point of reference that should do it
0: right so now we can uh, stock you Duly, um, well, Jim, the reason you're you're here is because you um you're you're you've sort of created an interesting phenomenon within the world of sports writing, and and uh, that's that's one of the the major concerns here on Fangraphs Audio. Um, is uh, is sort of like to, to investigate what is possible um, with mm-hmm. with sports writing beyond um, you know what we might find, for example, in the Boston Globe or uh, or you know more near and dear to our hearts, uh, our hearts. Uh, what we might find in the in the electronic pages of Fangraphs. Sure. Um, and you have uh, with Mabel Street, you've created a, uh, a a project that's sort of interesting in that you kind of. You, I, it seems to me that your priority is to get um, some of the best baseball writing in there, and, and I want to ask you about that in a second. I will say in um, in the service of uh, blatant uh, promotion for you. That um, our re- our our listeners will be able to read some uh, a sample of this is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. We're gonna we'll put up a sample of the article Dave Cameron did for me in the Red Sox edition on the acquisition of Carl Crawford and how his non-traditional value does justify his contract. Um, yeah, so we'll put a sample of that up along with some of the um, kind of stat profile breakdowns we do. We'll put that up, for Cameron, just so people can kind of, who aren't familiar with our publications can kind of see what it is we do and what it is we're trying to put out there for baseball fans.
0: Okay, well, there, there, there's the shameless promotion. And, uh, oh, I appreciate uh, it. Yeah, of course.
1: Uh, and a link to that
0: will, uh, will be available, uh, will be made available through the uh, Fangraphs uh, site as well. Um, but let's get to, to the content uh, of these first. I, mean, I guess I'm curious. Um, I'll take for granted, I guess, that many of our listeners will be at least to some degree familiar with this concept. But I'm curious, I guess, how this started, and and, and whether that is, um, you know, where Maple Street Press itself started the the first annual, or maybe you mm-hmm. know, going back before that to sort of your journey as a baseball fan, maybe that's where it starts. Um, it,
1: it's a little bit of both, honestly. Um, you know, I've been a tremendously big Red Sox fan for as long as I can remember. Um, I definitely remember crying on my parents' um, hamper after the ball went through Buckner's legs. Um, my first favorite player was Jackie Gutierrez. I mean, I definitely, like, I go back, you know, I'm 34, I go back to 84, I think is my first real tangible memory of the Red Sox, but I, you know, fell in love with them in 86, um, and kind of, no matter what they did, um, never fell out of love with them. You know, it's just kind of always been obsessively following them, and, you know, there's, you know, there's kind of mentioned, I mean, there's a lot of different reasons as you, you know, grow with a baseball team like that, that you continue to have such a, I mean, I'm a avid reader of fan graphs. Um, I'm really big into sabermetrics, but I'm also, you know, really big into the business aspects of the team and minor league development and the scouting process. And, you know, the nostalgic history of the Red Sox going, you know, going back into the history of the franchise and, you know, what it was like in 1967 when the team really put themselves on the map and what it would have been like to be, you know, a 20-year-old kid at that point. You know, like, I really love trying to, Picture all those, you know, some of those things in the team's history, and what it would have been like if my, you know, time on as a Red Sox fan had bracketed a different time in the fans' history than it has turned out to be. Um, so, but as a as a fan following the team, you know, I was in publishing prior to starting Maple Street, but I was always kind of frustrated by the fact that, you know, I was this huge Red Sox fan, and before the season would start, you know, especially at the end of like a long New England winter, you're looking for any sign of spring, so. Um, you're always looking for something to read up on about the the upcoming season and there was never any real offering that appealed to me as a huge Red sox fan you know there was a, everything out there was kind of from a national perspective and touched on the Red Sox and touched on a lot of different teams and you know I've read still to this day read a lot of those publications and they have their value for what they are but to me it seemed there was a real niche for something that really delved into one team and one team only um, so when we ended up Starting Maple Street um, six years ago, it was with the foundation of creating these team-specific preview guides. The first thing we published was a Red Sox preview edition in 2006 that I edited. Um, and again, you know, the idea was really to put together a magazine that kind of touched on all those different reasons that someone would love the team. Um, you know, if you pick up one of our magazines, you're going to get a lot of different viewpoints, a lot of different voices from people covering the team, new media, old media. Historians. Um, what we're looking for is the people that do the best job covering the team, and that's who we try to get involved with. Us is, you know, the way I put it to people that come on and do new projects with us is that if you know you had no idea this magazine existed, and you came across it in your grocery store, and you opened up the table of contents, you know, who would you want to hear from? You know, who is it that you really like the work they're doing um, covering the team, and who would you be excited to see? And you know, it's kind of how I've always viewed it and tried to get. People involved that way um, and just try to go after some of the storylines that I think are are most important to someone who's following it to that level. I mean, I've said it, you know, a number of times at this point, but every single year I've put one of these things together, I've learned a ton about the Red Sox, and that's when I'm following to an obsessive level. So I think there's something in there for just about any fan, and it's definitely from a different perspective than your, your everyday magazine. It's tailored front to back, all for a fan of that team.
0: Now, uh, right, and, and there is uh, within within each of these, there's a there's a, quite a breadth of writing. For example, um, uh, living now in Madison, Wisconsin, I you know I took some special interest in the uh, the Brewers annual, and you know this mm-hmm. is this is a situation where um, you know we can get to know more about you know uh, you know with with Jack Moore, who actually writes for Fangraphs, um, you know we have a pretty in-depth look at uh, Ricky Weeks and his qualifications. Uh, as a leadoff hitter, um, mm-hmm. but then it's something like, um, you know, we also get something uh, by Scott Vanderhelden, um, you know, about the team? Uh, right, exactly, yeah, the the Uke team, or you know, there's actually a couple things about Bob Euchre here too. There's also there something by by Drew Olson, and yep. quite frankly, it's hard to cover the Brewers without without covering Bob Euchre because yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I, yeah. I I forget who describes him in here. Uh, he's, he's the third sport in in Milwaukee. You know, it's the Packers, <laughs> the Brewers, and Bob Euker, and, and uh, to some degree, I'd say that's, that's the case.
1: Uh, There's but, also some wonderful, photos of the 87 Brewers in that magazine. They're, uh, I mean, it's just some, those uniforms and mustaches and hair, they're, uh, they're tremendous.
0: Yeah, and it, I will say, actually, uh, you may or may not know this, but that's how all people in Milwaukee actually look all the time, just full of <laughs> full <laughs> Brewer regalia and mustaches. Um, it's, that's uh, why I moved here, but the look works. It does, yeah. But so, so the thing is, you have that breadth. Now, I'm curious. Uh, obviously, you you, you know, you have a tension between you know having some commercial success, um, but then also wanting to have uh, you know some, I guess, some journalistic standards—not not necessarily journalistic standards, but you know, literary standards, we might say—and um, mm-hmm. you know, in producing great content. Now, I know the the first one of these I ever came across was, I guess, last year's edition of. Uh, the Seattle Mariners book, and it was just—I couldn't believe the names they read it. You know, it was like this—it was this uh, print edition of you know an annual about the Mariners, but it had guys like Dave Cameron in it and uh, and Dave Allen, um, mm-hmm. and you know guys who, and especially Dave Allen, you know can get pretty technical in some of his analyses. Um, and I'm wondering how—I'm wondering how if you ever come across a situation where maybe in trying to make it work for everyone, it doesn't. You, you worry that it may not work for anyone because you know, like someone who's interested more in the stories will see the stats and worry about that, or someone who's interested in the stats will see the stories and, and shirk away. Or if you feel like you, you're able to, to to strike a balance between those two things,
1: I think we're able to strike a balance. I think if we went all one direction or the other, it would be it would be a little bit difficult. But I think if um, you know, I think if we tried to make a team-specific magazine that was 100% sabermetric and technical, you Limiting the market so much that it would be difficult to have enough people to appeal to. But I think, in a lot of ways, there, you know, there's a lot of baseball fans out there that aren't aren't interested and in tur- turned in uh, turned on to sabermetrics. Not because they don't have the ability to or won't be. It's because no one's really taken the time to introduce them to it and explain the concepts in a way that they're accessible to. And I think a lot of, in a lot of ways we've we've done that for fans with some of these magazines you know i don't think any of the articles that are in there are too technical and not within the reach of someone who's never been introduced to the concepts so i think what in a lot of ways we're taking fan we are taking a fan that may be initially turned off by some of it and giving them an article that's accessible enough that they understand you know some of the work that's being done in that realm and in that field and you know hopefully can Bring them into it a little bit more after they're done with our magazine, and I think it still holds up to the type of analysis being done. Still holds up to someone who's already familiar with the concepts. You know, we're not doing sort of you know, sabermetrics 101 in there or anything like that. But I think it's accessible. If you're a big, if you're a fan of one of these teams, it's accessible enough that even if you have no prior background in that area, you're going to be able to read and understand the concept. So, you know, I don't think it's. I think we're able to strike the right balance between. Being too technical and not technical enough.
0: Right. Okay. So, so start. So we we heard of uh, in 2006 is when you started. Uh, you released the first edition, and that was it was for the Red Sox only at that time.
1: Yeah, the Red Sox was the only. We did the Red Sox, and then later that year we did uh, Notre Dame football. Uh, so we did two of these pre-review guides that year, being those two. And the reason for that were the those were my two real sports passions. Um, so those were the ones that I knew the writers, I knew the fan base, I knew, you know, what people would be interested in, you know, what their people were talking about, the type of people that people were reading, um, you know, I was on numerous message boards all the time about both teams, on numerous email strings with um, fans about going to all with the teams, so I was able to put those two together, but as we expanded beyond that, you know, I do how to put the magazines together at that point after doing the first two, but if I came back and tried to do, you know, Chicago Cubs edition, well, I'm not drilled down in the Chicago Cubs fan base. You know, I don't know everything. I don't know the nuances of the Chicago Cubs because I'm a Red Sox fan. You know, I spend, I follow baseball without a doubt as a league, but I don't focus on any other team specifically besides the Red Sox. So it becomes difficult to, you know, if you're going to try to edit it, someone who then picks it up, who is a diehard Cubs fan is going to see the holes in it, and that's the last thing we're wanting. You know, I mean, we're trying to make these things appeal to, the, you know, real diehard fans of these specific teams in a way that nothing else really in the marketplace is doing. So in order to do that, you know, you need a project lead at the front that is someone who knows the ins and outs of that fan base. You know, I mean, that's why, for the example of the Mariners last year, that's why we had Dave Cameron edit it, because, you know, in my opinion, not many more people know the ins and outs of the Mariners better than he does.
0: You no, know, that's pretty you know, that, that's a pretty good way to do it now how does that process go about in terms of uh, you know searching for and and deciding upon an editor I noticed that you know there are a lot of the editors are um, guys uh, typically guys uh, who are in charge of team specific blogs you know uh, some of them mm-hmm. in the SB nation uh, mm-hmm. family and some of them elsewhere um, I mean is that Is that? Did you want to necessarily start with electronic media? Were you open to print media as well? How did that process go?
1: Yeah, we were open to both when we started out. I mean, it was really just finding someone who, who covered and followed the team in a way that they could understand what we were doing, identify the people that needed to go into it, and reach out reach out to them on our behalf and kind of build the product in our vision and template. As it's developed, we definitely use far more electronic media guys to head them up and girls to head them up um, that we do traditional media but that wasn't you know that wasn't a goal of ours when we set out it's just as, how it's developed and I think a lot of that is you know as things like SB Nation and you know the ESPN Sweet Spot Network have taken hold you know you've got these people out there that are running these fan sites that if you let, li- you know what I looked at before is what someone needed to, needed to know to do this project for us is to kind of be drilled down on the fan base know what people are talking about and know what people what people are interested in reading and what they like and what they don't like. Well, who knows that better than someone who's running a community of fans? You yeah. know, and, and that's really how it developed, is that those people had the skill set that matched what we needed in order to successfully put the magazine together the best. And you know, it's, kind of, it's kind of developed organically out of that.
0: You know, it's interesting that you say that in terms of the, the unique position that the editors of these team-specific blogs run. Um, to take another example from from one of the annuals I have right here is the uh, is the Cardinals, uh, the Cardinals annual in a site like Viva Albertos, um, which is mm-hmm. headed by Dan Moore, who I uh, who I uh, has been on the uh, FanGraphs audio a couple times, and I think is really one of the more interesting writers out there in that he's able to cover the team, but he also um, and you know you may, you may or may not be aware of this, but like he also does like a lot of bizarre sort of uh, bizarre and whimsical and fun. Uh, creative writing, sort of Cardinal's mm-hmm. re- related creative writing pieces like these sort of like three-act plays with Kyle Loesch as the tragic main character um, and Dan's sort of an interesting guy himself but I'm curious when it, when it comes to the heads of these blogs do you think that there's a certain uh, sensibility uh, among someone who's who's editing a team blog a certain maybe uh, uh, Openness or open-mindedness towards towards what's possible that that maybe someone who's been involved in print media, his or her whole life may not possess. Um,
1: I can see what you're saying. I don't know. I mean, I think I don't know. I mean, that's a that's a little bit of a tough question. I think um, it would depend on you know it depends on the person. You know, I think someone who's in print media, or someone who's in electronic media, doesn't necessarily limit their creativity on either side of the fence. Um, but I do think you know, when they're we starting off and getting involved with some of these people that had these up for us, you know, we always say to them, you know, it's not my job to tell you what a Cardinals fan wants to read, or what a Cubs fan wants to read, or what a Mariners fan wants to read. It's our job to help you develop the best magazine for that fan base, and we're going to do that every way we can, because we've put out, you know, hundreds of these things at this point. But we want you to be able to make this thing your baby, and make it your vision and what you think a fan of that team would, would want to read and i you know i think they a lot of them have taken it in slightly different directions and i think the good thing about that is you know when we send out other editions to editors they can see how you know what direction someone else took it in that feeds an idea from them um you know if you know we're doing we're getting into college football now and we've got a guy who just signed on to do a Florida State edition who mentioned that he got a great idea from last year's Red Sox magazine that we sent him. You know, And I think there's a lot of that crossover between having such a diverse group of people that are working on these magazines that you get a lot of crossover of idea. I don't know that it's necessarily inherent to being a print versus electronic media guy. I think it's more just being handed something that's kind of yours to mold in what direction you want to take it and you know I think the right people that have success put these together for us have a vision that they want to take the magazine in
0: now you mentioned the idea of sort of uh, talking to an editor and giving him or her a, a sense of of what the I guess the finished product should should accomplish but not necessarily how to do that uh, I wonder if is this an anxious process for you uh, in in handing it over you know, something that you're gonna have your name on and publish and distribute but you know, the content of which will be largely out
1: of your hands? Oh, it's not large. I mean, it's not necessarily largely out of our hands. I mean, it's not as if we throw these guys out there into the wilderness and say, (laughs) bring us back a magazine and we're going to distribute it everywhere. I mean, we have editors that are working in house on the development of the content, you know, and reviewing the content more closely with the editors, you know, developing ideas and making sure everything kind of fits with, you know, our ultimate idea for what the magazine's purpose should be. But what, you know, what we don't get into is saying, this is a storyline that people care about that follow, you know, the Tigers, and this is a storyline that people care about that follow the Rangers, and so on down the line, and we really do try and leave that open-ended to the editors, but we don't just take, you know, we just don't take the content and put it in, I mean, we definitely are highly, that's what I was saying, our job is to help them develop the magazine and develop the content, not tell them exactly what the content should be covering.
0: So after 2006, when you did the Red Sox and the, uh, I guess the Notre, the, the Notre Dame football Irish, um, yep. What 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 happened then? I, I assume uh, it was successful enough for, and not harrowing enough of uh, an experience for, for you to want it to do it again.
1: Yeah, I mean that's where I was saying we you know we started to reach out to bring on other people to edit them because we needed team experts to come in and head up other teams. You know, so we expanded out to do four baseball teams three college football teams and one college basketball team in 2007 and then at that point we shifted at that point we had put everything out you know just to technically explain it it was put out as a book so like if you wanted to go buy it you had to, you had to like barnes and noble or borders. um and then in 2008 we shifted it into like a traditional newsstand model where you could go in and buy it at like supermarkets and cvs and walmart which is where we still are today um which has obviously allowed us a lot more exposure, a lot more brand, uh, brand exposure, a lot more reach with the product and made it available to a lot more fans. Um and that's when we started to grow it, you know, more aggressively in the fact that, you know, last year we did 12, I mean, this past baseball season we did 12 baseball teams and, you know, we'll do 12 college football teams and TPD, NFL football teams. Um, <laughs> <laughs> There'll be some number in there. Yeah. Um, the, if there hadn't been labor strike, you know, I would I'd be able to tell you what that was. But uh, with you know, we do ten college basketball teams. We'll do five uh, professional hockey teams. Um, I think you know we're really at the tip of the iceberg as far as you know where this thing. The number of, teams of this we could cover. You know, I think ultimately our goal is to be covering every I mean, every MLB team, every NFL team. You know, the real upper echelon of College sports and the top twenty or thirty football, basketball teams. I just, I think ultimately that there is no, there aren't many people doing something similar in the, uh, in a lot of these places. And I think we've carved out a magazine that people really, really like to read on a yearly basis. You know, I think it's, you know, it's nice on a yearly basis to get a report on the team from kind of a big picture perspective as to what is you know, what's going on in the off season, what to look for coming up, some looks back on, you know, things that have happened 20, 25, 30 years ago, the state of the mind of the system, uh, you know, along those lines. And I think as we continue to grow, you know, you'll see us roll out some things in between, you know, digitally and electronically um, that aren't going to be strictly print, you know, but we're definitely committed to having a once-a-year print product for each one of these teams.
0: Now, in in a general sense, is it sort of a uh, it must be almost kind of like a um, the sort of pleasure you derive from it. Would it seemed to start from such a an intimate you know interest for you, right? In 2005 or six, you're you're dealing with uh, producing a, an annual for for two teams that you care about deeply, um, mm-hmm. and I wonder. Uh, I mean, is this a sort of well, it's a couple things. One is this must be a sort of a guilty pleasure that you derive from it, where your your job is to is to care about the inner workings of this team and then share that with other people. That seems to be quite an opportunity. And then I guess secondly, how how does it uh, have you had to adjust at all as as Babel Street's gotten bigger and, uh, and reached out to more teams, um, where maybe I guess the project would be int- you know you'd be intimately involved, but in a different way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I um, you know I mean especially thought it was a real labor of love. I mean, it's a tremendous amount of work getting everything off the ground and getting, you know, product design in place and getting a distribution network set up and all, you know, all the mechanics that go into getting it off the ground is a tremendous amount of work. But at the end of the day, crafting content that you knew people were going to read about the upcoming season, and you know, was a complete labor of love. And I still get a—I no longer edit the Notre Dame when I had to hand that off. Um, just as our football season grew. Um, grew in volume I just didn't have the time to be able to do it I still do at the Red Sox one and it, it's one of the best things I do all year you know as part of the company just working with the individual authors and you know developing ideas exchanging ideas um, and just crafting the magazine that someone like I said that someone at this point looks forward to reading before the season every year means a lot to me you know it really does think um, you know I think it comes through I think it comes through with the passion that People write for, put into it, and the passion that we put on this side, putting it together. I mean, it's not as if I don't think that there's an end use for these. And we're just putting out magazines and you know, walking through trying to trying to grow a small company, which is ultimately what we're doing. But I mean, we're trying to make magazines for baseball fans and for you know fans of other teams ultimately as well. But I mean, we're really trying to make magazines for fans that love these teams, and that's ultimately the goal of everything everything we're doing here. And it a goal when we started. You know, is to make something find a way to make it work, because no one's making this product, and I'm a huge fan of these sports teams, and I want it, you know, and I know a lot of other people that would want it, so so there has to be a way to make it work, and like I said, I mean, it was a tremendous amount of work, and I mean, it's not as if I didn't, I was in publishing prior to starting the company, it's not as if I, you know, woke up one day and was like, hey, I'm going to start a publishing company. (laughs) Um, So, but it has, I mean, it is a labor of love for sure, it's just and it has, as it's grown, you know, to speak to that second question, I mean, it has become a little more difficult to be as intimately involved, but, I mean, we've hired a good editorial staff here that does a great job on a daily basis and we have a great production team. that, you know, has kept everything in line with what it was when I was intimately involved with every single step of every single magazine that we put out.
0: So here we are. We're uh, recording this on a Tuesday afternoon. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, your Red Sox are... Or zero and three? Is that
1: right? Yeah, you're not mistaken. You're not mistaken. <laughs> you might have heard that one or two other places. <laughs> I have.
0: Uh, so, so what's the so what's the what's the deal,
1: Jim Walsh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, maybe, maybe a small size of games. I mean, I mean, it's a nightmarish weekend when you know you wait all all offseason, you know, especially an offseason like the Red Sox had, and then all the spring training, and then. You know, they have the modified opening of the season, so it's going to open on a weekend. You know, I have to be honest that my weekend plans were largely centered around making sure I could watch three Red Sox games. And three Red Sox games were, a, were not much fun to watch. Um, but, you know, I think it's nothing to worry about. I mean, they didn't look good. They didn't look overly prepared to start the season. But there's too much talent there. I mean, they're going to be there in the end. I mean, I don't think anybody that's drawing any sort of big-scale conclusions, I think, is obviously... Not listening to FanGraphs audio, right? Uh, it's no, just, uh, no,
0: they're right. It's an important, uh, important contribution to the uh, history of audio recordings. The uh, no,
1: I, yeah, <laughs> I'm just saying. I think uh, most people, most people that read your site, and tune into this podcast, um, probably have a little bit bigger um, vision of the season than the opening three games,
0: right? How's because uh, I know that uh, last year, right about this time, uh, maybe maybe a week a week later, Dan Shaughnessy had. Uh, uh, he had fired up the grousing machine, and he had—I mm-hmm. think probably before the season began—he had a couple of, uh, uh, you know, screeds against the against the Red Sox. Has he uh, has he gotten around to that yet?
1: Well, not too much, yet Not too much. I think opening day he wrote a uh, he wrote a column that included like every Boston sports disappointment that's ever been, um, <laughs> just in reference to what would happen if this team didn't live up to expectations. But you know, I think that the key difference between last year and this year was, you know. I'm, three games against the Indians here I mean by the time you know by the time Friday comes it's likely they could be three and three and everyone's you know everyone's talking about something else but I think the difference between last year and this year a little bit is that the general consensus especially in the mainstream media and in some of the fan bases people really didn't like the shift to let Jason Bay go bring in Adrian Bell train scooter around Mike Cameron and go the run prevention route people just really didn't buy into that concept and you know i a lot of this is in the magazine, but I think, you know, that not, you know, the Red Sox not making the playoffs, I don't think was a victim of bad planning or bad strategy. You know, it was bad circumstances. You know, it goes back to that old accident of good decision, bad results, bad decision, good results. You know, where did it fall? I think, you know, the, the, t- the concept of what they were doing last year just never really got put out there. You know, it took Beltra a while to develop the glove. Cameron was hurt all year. Ellsbury was hurt all year. So you never really saw that you know, super defensive team that they would want to put out there. And further, Josh Beckett, you know, barely performed like a major league starting pitcher, and John Lackey was a back of the rotation type guy. You know, so there's just some variance in their performance levels and health that you never really saw the quote-unquote run prevention Red Sox that everyone was so worried about. Meanwhile, you know, Adrian Beltre goes and dashes the ball all over the park, to kind of score the second most runs in the league. You no, know, you know, Jason Bay is a nightmare for. the met And no well, one brings that up with a bring up anymore. The people are actually <laughs> most concerned about the Red Sox not scoring runs. You know, in fact, they scored a ton of runs. They just gave up too many. But
0: right, yeah. What I was,
1: I'm giving you a long-winded answer, but I think people really didn't like that approach last year, so they had a much shorter rope. I think this year, you know, even the mainstream media, Sean I mean, I think the reactionary people in the mainstream Boston media are going to give them a lot more rope, just because, I mean, all the pieces are there. You know, I think if they get off to a little bit of a slow start, I mean, I guess technically they are all already off to a slow start. But even if they were to start, you know, six and ten like they did last year, I think there's absolutely no real reason for concern.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, in fact, it should also be added that, uh, as you noted, uh, they did score a lot of runs last year, and I think by by the base runs standings, they still had like the third or fourth best team uh, in the majors. I think they they were a little unlucky, and then they also happened to be. Well, unlucky in a different way in that they share a division mm-hmm. with two teams that were better than them. Um,
1: yeah, that's I mean, that's definitely true. You know, it was, it was gonna happen to one of those three teams. You knew it before the season. They all had very good, very well constructed rosters that were only two teams that came out of the division and you know, it just wasn't the red Sox here. I, mean, I think I think it's um, it was a pretty valiant effort on their part to stay in the race until Labor Day to be honest.
0: Right. Well, it's good that we've had some Red Sox talk uh, as well because it's so hard to find that elsewhere in the yeah, in, in the mainstream media. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but listen, Jim, I, I, I'd really like to thank you for joining us and uh, telling us a little bit about the uh, the, the Maple Street Press story and uh, telling us a little bit about where it's going. And uh wish you the best of luck and look forward to future uh, excellent editions, sir. I appreciate you having me on. Okay, this has been Jim Walsh. I'm Carson Tastouli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio.